welcome to the 155th episode of Reverse Threat Radio. I'm Andy Ryan. And I'm Toby Chan. It's 66 years to the day since Jim Laker took all 10 wickets in an innings against the Australians at Old Trafford. His match figures of 19 for 90 remain the greatest ever test match bowling figures. Colin Cowdery described Laker that day as the calm destroyer. I remember listening to a debate maybe a couple of years ago maybe it was an article on Crick Info talking about the greatest ever um, bowling figures and someone made the claim that Jim Laker's 19 for 90 was kind of a complete inevitability of bowling on um, uncovered pitches once it had once it had rained a bit and I always felt a bit on you know that's probably if I was Jim Laker I'd be a bit upset of having taken 19 wickets in a test match and being told that oh that's just you know the, the nature of the pitch. The Australians were famously very unhappy about the pitch uh, and Locke at the other end was also famously unhappy about the fact that his one wicket in its own way became kind if of you're as the other spinner, If you're Lakers the other 19. spinner, then you can yeah. you know, get, a bit, get a bit annoyed. Um, so um, now Andy does not uh, only have a beautiful voice, he also has a beautiful, beautiful pen and um, he's going to be telling us about a... Um, article that he's been uh he's been writing um i've been watching a remarkable run fest at uh, glamorgan although i was interested in the fact that dear old billy root joe root's brother of course scored a duck in what was other i think otherwise one of the highest ever first innings um team totals a bit like um what we were saying about um lock and laker um from the archives we're going to be talking about a um slightly a hazardous moment on a on a cricket pitch in in india in the uh, early 1990s um and then we're going to be reviewing uh, a book the unforgiven missionaries or mercenaries a fantastic book by the australian sports writer ashley gray about the rebel west indian tour of south africa um so I've, I've always written bits and pieces, but the various lockdowns were a great chance to write more, among, despite all the frustrations. And I decided I was going to enter the Wisden Writing Prize, which for those of you who haven't heard of it, the Wisden run an annual prize. The only condition, as far as I understand it, is that you can't have been, you can't be a professional writer, can't have been published in Wisden before. 500 so it's for words. new voices. That's fantastic. Exactly. I've never heard of it. F- f- yeah, and it's 500 words, any topic linked to cricket, and it can't be a match report, I think is the only condition. So I looked for inspiration in our various feet from the archives features that we've done on this podcast. And I settled on a feature from back in episode 89, the two cricketing London Underground posters from the 1930s. Mm. Um, now, sadly, I didn't win the Wisden Writing Prize, so I then tried to get the article into the Night Watchman magazine, which um, you'll know from previous episodes that we're very fond of on the podcast. Um, and they liked it, but they wanted more detail. And this set me on a very enjoyable chase that led to conversations with a biographer of the artist Anna Zinkheisen, a Canadian art society, um, and possibly uh, most uh, undeserving, I, I ended up speaking directly to the curator of the London Transport Museum museum who's a lovely man and a, and a complete cricket nut oh, i was gonna um, say did he did he have anything to say on the subject but maybe there's a kind of a um a venn diagram of sort of tran you know transport sort of train spotting underground spotting and cricket tragic and in the middle is this happily sits this guy 
Absolutely. No, he was, I think you get that sense sometimes when you ask an expert a question that they are clearly delighted to be asked. And it was this sort of situation. Um, and finally, the article has been published in the latest edition of The Night Watchman, the summer 2022 edition. Um, and I suppose I'm telling this story partly as a bit of a plug, you know, go out and read it and go out and support The Night Watchman. Um, but also a little bit as a call to arms, which is, um, if you're mulling over writing something, um, you know, give it a go, not just because the writing's fun, but because as I was frankly surprised to learn with a, a research project like this, it leads you into unexpected places. It's not just the sort of you and your laptop, it's the, the, the people you meet in between. Well, I was going to ask, because one of the differences with this process, I suppose, to recording this podcast is that we don't have, um, probably for worse, we don't have an editor kind of sitting over us uh, when it comes to reverse <laughs> web radio telling us what we're doing wrong, what we need to expand on and what we need to you know leave out whereas this process obviously when you're working with you know an editor at the, the night and watchman and i was gonna ask about whether that was a kind of frustrating or, or fruitful um experience well, but it sounds as if it was quite fruitful in terms of actually well, the giving you the impetus is, to go and do all of this extra research well exactly exactly i certainly wouldn't have reached out without that nudge i think what i would say is and i don't know how typical i am on this my initial response to any feedback on my writing is always sort of low level outrage i'm like no, no <laughs> yeah, you don't understand yeah. i did it like this for a reason i am proust and, then, and you just it, exactly not, <laughs> are you exactly. an yeah touching touching my precious words but um you then have the time to sort of reflect on it a bit and generally these you know editors are right if they say this thing you've written is not interesting, cut it out, or this thing is interesting, write more of it. They generally they're generally right. So um yes, that's that that I, I really sort of enjoyed that. And I think it's also just nice um generally for someone who knows what they're talking about to take to take an interest. So no, it was yes. a um it was a it was a, a fun process. Um now something that I have no doubt will be the subject of a Night Watchman article in probably the not too distant future. Mm was what took place uh, in Wales the other week. Yeah, so while during lockdown you were spending time honing your writing skills, I just watched an awful lot of YouTube. Mm -hmm. um, the um, Look, I, I haven't kept up very well with county cricket over the last little while. Partly it's time zones, partly it's having a, a, small, a small baby. But um, scrolling through Twitter the other day, I saw this kind of slightly cryptic tweet saying, oh, there's a game, county game being live streamed and there are only a few hundred people watching the live stream, but it just needs to be needs to be watched by more. So I clicked on the link thinking, oh, which what game is, is, is this? And of course, I found myself in the middle of this extraordinary um, run fest, the... Um, uh, the game where Glamorgan um, were racking up at that point, they were somewhere in the in the seven hundreds. Um, I would say the first thing that really impressed me was the fact that um, it was being live streamed on on YouTube. And in the past, they've done it just with a single camera, kind of behind the bowler's arm, but from one end. So someone sometimes from behind the keeper, and you can't see any of the action in the field or anything. Whereas this had live commentary, it had a few different camera angles. It was really, you know, really well done. You could follow the follow the game um, game properly. When I joined it, Sam Northeast was approaching his quadruple century. Chris Cook was um, nearing 200. As I mentioned earlier, a bit poor Billy Rooter got out got out for a duck. Um, it was frankly pretty pretty awful cricket the um bowling was just an attempt to keep keep the runs down they were often bowling just wide outside off stump the fielders were around the boundary the batsmen were absolutely shattered but were just desperately trying to you know rack up their milestones um 
And so they were kind of throwing the bat at everything. But because of that, it was also kind of quite compelling as well. It was like watching, you know, if you took a kind of test team and just gave them 12 beers and then sent them into the nets. And well, like it was quite kind of amusing to watch kind of really quality professional cricketers kind of slightly, slightly brought low, I suppose. Um, and then, of course, there was just the intrigue of where Sam Northeast was going to end up on the on the run scoring record list and where the game was going to um, end up as well because there was a, a little bit of life um, life still in the still in the game. The other thing um, which I found quite compelling about it is that when Sam Northeast finally did get to his quadruple century, and you know that's not something that 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 everyone achieves, but his just kind of muted celebration of just kind of just about managed to lift his arms to the not very many people in the in in the ground. I think he was just absolutely exhausted, and it felt like a foregone conclusion for a while. It was just a, again a, a kind of fun little quirk to. Um, to this it's an interesting feature of these record attempts and maybe particularly batting record attempts that as you say it's often not actually very good cricket Mm. I mean I think back to sort of you know the Lara 500 (coughs) like normally something has to have gone quite wrong um, in terms of the balance between bat and ball Um, what was quite entertaining is you said there was surprisingly life left in this game Glamorgan went on to win the game they put Leicester in and bowled them out um, I think it was yeah, and and I and I think, um, I think they've been in the well, field for a long time before the yes. poor openers had to go out because I think it was on the last day they declared on the last day was it and they gave themselves not all that long to bowl them out but did bowl and it was out. an interesting trade off wasn't it between sort of individual and obviously the right thing to do is team success but it the, the, but I I saw I saw there certainly was some initial outrage on Twitter about the fact that Northeast hadn't been given his chance to go on and break all the records and get his five hundred but it would have taken I mean the scoring was really slowing down it would have taken an awfully long time to have to to have got there certainly from the archives and in this episode toby is going to take us back to a moment on an indian cricket field when a stump became a weapon so um this uh, from the archives was inspired by a picture i saw on on Twitter, so there's a cricketer with his back to us playing what looks like actually quite a fine cut shot, sort of perched up on one foot, but he's wearing no pads. And while the picture is blurry because of the speed at which his hands are moving, you can see that it's definitely not a bat that he's holding. Um, instead, the batsman is clearly defined standing just a foot or two in front of this character with his bat horizontally across his chest in a sort of you know fencing move as if he's sort of parrying, parrying something off. Now, we are used to, you know, occasional pictures of shenanigans happening on cricket pitches. Obviously, Mike Mike Gassing jabbing his finger into the chest of umpire Shakurana is 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 an obvious one. Um, but this image, you know, goes goes a step further. It's very rare that you have one player with a stump attacking another player who's defending themselves with a bat in the middle of the game. So this thing piqued my interest, and I had to investigate further. Um, I should just acknowledge that the um, photo was posted by Abhishek Mukherjee, um, who has. A wonderful uh, account that I would recommend if you're on Twitter and you don't follow him I would really recommend it because he posts a lot of kind of um, I mean tri- trivia is, is trivialising it um, but interesting quirky moments from cricket history well, that he uh, explains and unpacks in multiple tweets it as gets well. into this interesting thing about cricket and sports photography more generally that a lot of the action shots from kind of in game are very very memorable but I sometimes wonder if it isn't these kind of in between shots of you know players as you say facing 
lighting up or um, those facial expressions after a particular moment that often aren't some of the most. Well, the thing is that some. Yeah, well, exactly, and you know, one cover drive is very much like another and is not mm. particularly distinctive. But if you think back to the Ashes two thousand and five, it's um, Freddie Flintoff with his arm around Brett Lee. It's not really a moment within mm-hmm. the game. Interesting thought. Um, so who who are the protagonists in this in this picture? So the bowler with the stump is um, Rashid Patel, and you won't be surprised to know that the bowler holding a stump attacking another player is kind of the bad guy in this situation. Um, you'd be forgiven for never having heard of, of Rashid Patel. He played only one test and one ODI for India in the late 1980s, but in that one test and one ODI, he did attain a certain <laughs> notoriety because he is the only player to have batted twice and bowled twice in a test match, so in both innings, without scoring a single run or taking a single wicket. So I think it was against um, it was against New Zealand, and I think Richard Hadley got him out both times for a, for a duck. He then went on, I think later in that tour, to play in an ODI. He didn't bat. He also didn't take a wicket. So, look, Rashid Patel, he never set the world on fire, and he certainly didn't set the world on fire in a domestic cricket um, either. He averaged nine with the bat and 34 with the ball throughout his, his career. Apparently he considered himself an all-rounder, never scored more than 40 um so a couple of years after he's had this unsuccessful foray into test cricket um he finds himself playing in the Dulip trophy in jamshedpur um the game is a complete dud by day five north zone um kapal dev uh, one of the players playing for north zone scores a century and um north uh north zones uh, pile up 729 for nine <laughs> um, a glamorgan-esque score <laughs> indeed um west zone score 561 uh, in uh, in in response, um, North Zone batting again, and then Raman Lamber, who is our other um, protagonist here, he'd scored a century in the first innings. He's opening the second innings. Um, they're motoring along at 59 without loss. It's the last day um, of the game. There's no way that this isn't going to end in a draw. So looks like this game is just going to is just going to peter out. It's then, not. It's not a thrilling. It's not a thrilling final. It's is it, not. It's point? not there's, a thrilling there's final. There's very little ten- tension. There's little tension in the crowd. Well, stage. there is little tension in the crowd, but there is some tension um, under the, you know, un- under the skin of our friend Rashid uh, Patel. So, in the tenth over, Lambert is batting against Patel, and Lambert complains that Patel has been running on the pitch in his follow through. So that area between the stumps that you're not allowed to run on or run on repeatedly as a, as a bowler to protect it, um, Lambert says that Patel's Patel's running running on that. Apparently, this has been an issue earlier on in the game, and there was a little bit of you know tension in the air about who had an who hadn't been doing it. Actually, the accusation had been made in the other other direction as well. The ball after um, Patel, who's bowling, oversteps by a yard, so presumably entirely intentionally, and bowls what from different accounts is either, depending on who you believe, a vicious bouncer or a beamer. Um, Lambert makes, who's the batsman, makes his displeasure very clear. Um, you know, a few a few verbals, as they call them, down down the pitch towards the bowler, and he then and he then turns away towards the keeper and the slips. You know, ready to sort of prepare himself for the next ball. What he doesn't know is that Patel, in his follow through, has kind of gathered up ahead of steam, and he runs up the wicket up to where the batsman is standing, the on-strike batsman. He plucks a stump out of the out of the ground. Luckily, the batsman at the other end, AJ Jadeja, he's the kind of person you want when you've got a bowler on the <laughs> rampage with a stump. He's alert, and he shouts out to Lambert, and he says, you know watch out, you've got Patel coming at you. Um, he also, Jadeja, who seems like, you know, from all accounts, come, comes out of this very well, the only person really to come out of it well, he then goes and he puts himself between his teammate and Patel. 
he actually is the person who ends up getting, I think, hit quite extensively with the stump. Um, uh, Patel then loses onto Lambert, who then has to use his bat to defend himself. Hence this, um, hence this picture. Um, there's no video footage of this, but the, the contemporary accounts and photos suggest that Patel kind of gave him a bit of a chase around the, <laughs> a, around around the square. So it's not a pretty, not a pretty picture. Things then kicked off in the crowd because of it. Stones are thrown. Vinod Cambly, poor old Vinod Cambly, gets gets hit by a stone in the outfield, and the game is banned. It's interesting because, as you say, you, you've reconstructed this from accounts the time and it's obviously hard without the footage it you wonder if something was said because you you can see how these uh, you can see how a disagreement built up but how that actually escalated to the picking up of the stump particularly given that based on what had happened Patel rather than Lambert felt like the main offender here in terms of you know he was the one that bowled the bouncer beamer he was yeah, so exactly you you think that he's yeah exactly he's kind of got his aggression out by bowling that by bowling that mm. ball so so we don't know and there are no accounts as to whether there was some kind of brilliant sledge that cut to the bone mm. about Patel's grandmother or something that suddenly made him see see red certainly after the fact a little while after Patel was was giving an interview and he was asked about this because this is really the incident that came to define his career because as we've seen cricketing prowess did not define his career um so and and he said look cricketers are generally good guys but things happen in the heat of the moment when the pressure gets to you in my case north zone piled up 700 plus runs to me they were playing defensive cricket i was provoked by raman and got very angry now we don't know what that i was provoked by raman bit means but I don't think a, a suitable reaction to someone playing defensive cricket <laughs> is to, or for someone who scored 700 plus with you, is to start attacking them with a stump. I mean, that seems like a bit of a, you know, a bit of an escalation. And I have to be honest, when you read accounts of what Patel was, were, you know, like as a as, as a person, I think it might have been in his character to, you know, have um, flipped out without particularly. Um, well, we can probably all think, and I guess it's mainly fast bowlers we think of this perhaps rather than anyone else, that there are players who have to play slightly on the brink mm. to play at their best. And there's a level of sort of anger. I mean, um, we'll get to it very shortly when we review The Unforgiven. But, you know, uh, tales there of certain West Indian fast bowlers who delivered their very best performances in the face of sort yep. of a slight from the opposition yep. or, or actually a, a wind up from a teammate so yes maybe he was um fired up and that went beyond bowling into well as you say f- f- stump fencing well in a time before stump mics well actually i don't know whether stump mics were around at the time but certainly it seems this game given that it wasn't even televised um wouldn't have had stump mics it kind of is impossible to know exactly what you know was said and you're right that this is this kind of sense of what happens on the field stays on the mm-hmm. you know stays on the field and no one no one ever knows but certainly there are no accounts of any particular kind of um words being said that could have led to something so there were three really interesting fallouts from from this um first one of which is that the game and the the trophy that they were playing for because let's remember this was a final was awarded to north zone on the basis of their higher first innings score so this was despite the fact that it ended in a kind of obvious draw for a start and the second puzzling thing is that when you have a, a someone on you know one team attacking someone on the other with a stump that that and the game being abandoned as a result that that doesn't lead to 
an impact on which way the result goes. So yes, that would have still meant that North Zone had kind of won it if they decided that you know you've kind of forfeited the game. But that wasn't even held in consideration at all. The only thing that was you know held mm. in consideration was the fact that it was a higher first innings tour score. Now um, Patel got a 13 month ban for his um, for his uh, stump field uh, fencing exploits. Um, that seems pretty lenient to be honest. He could have done some serious damage to someone's eye. Bizarrely, Lambert got a 10 month ban. He's <laughs> the batsman who got attacked, and this is there is no kind of evidence for why that ban was given. Maybe it was because it was seen that he provoked him in some, you know, he provoked Patel in some way. Now the other um, side of it is quite sad. So Patel came back after his his ban. He only played a handful more first class games, and his his form did not improve. Lambert, however, his life ended in 1998 when he was playing in Bangladeshi League cricket. League cricket. Um, and he is actually one of the few people ever to have died on a cricket pitch. He was hit in the forehead while fielding and slipped into a slipped into a coma and, and died shortly afterwards from that. So kind of from beginning to end, this is, I'm afraid, one of those stories where absolutely no one is a winner. The review, and for this, the 155th episode of Reverse Swept Radio, we have been reading The Unforgiven Missionaries or Mercenaries, the untold story of the rebel West Indian cricketers who toured apartheid South Africa. Um, It was published in 2020 and written by Ashley Gray, who's an Australian sports writer based in Sydney. Essentially, in the book, Gray tracks down the West Indian cricketers who took part in the Rebel tours in the early 1980s, and he interviews them about both about those tours and how those tours affected their lives. And the book is a series of chapters; these interviews um, that goes um, uh, that that make up the book. Um, Andy, how clear a sense do we get? You know, however many 30, 40 years on, um, about why the Rebels toured. South Africa, why they made this ultimately life-changing decision. It's obviously the question that Gray is quick to ask all of them. And I think overwhelmingly the players put it forward as a career decision. Um, Some of them do take the time to set out a moral case for touring. So they talk about this idea of the importance of setting an example in apartheid South Africa about what black athletes could achieve if given the chance. But most are very honest that it was a very generous offer um, and that all of the players really, for some reason or other had come to a point where they felt their career prospects with the West Indies mm. were, had, had dimmed. Um, and there was this particular challenge that I think was well explained that in comparison to a lot of other cricketing nations, the other options were slimmer. So the point is made, for example, that because TV money hadn't descended on the West Indies in the same way, um, it what, there weren't loads of great jobs in commentary, for example. There were limited jobs in coaching. Um, so I think you get this picture very clearly that for a lot of players, um, it felt like a necessary step um, in their next step in their career. It was necessary. They all they had nothing to lose, as you say. They felt like their kind of uh, careers were over. But I also got the sense quite frequently that. Um, Looking back and with the benefit of hindsight, there was a lot of attempts to rationalise the decision. Mm. Whereas, whereas at the time, I wonder whether they realised that they were making as big a decision and as life changing a decision as as they were. So yes, they knew that they were potentially going to be banned from playing for the West Indies, but that didn't really matter because they weren't necessarily going to mm. come back. But what I don't think they realised was the extent to which this would come to define them and their you know and their careers. Colin Croft, one of the most famous players to have to have done it, um, just you know he he yeah, at the time said um, 
you know, we haven't been able to see much of the country other than hotels and cricket fields. This is when they're in South Africa. And he says, listen, man, cricket is cricket. All tours are much the same. You know, there is a sense of, yes, we're kind of vaguely aware that this apartheid thing going on, but ultimately we're here to play cricket and, and, and cricket is what we, you know. Well, it's an interesting we comment. It's an interesting comment because I imagine there's a lot of truth in it still today. I mean, I think um, you'll remember we reviewed um, a documentary a few episodes ago about England touring India in a much more sort of chaotic, let's see the country sort of way Mm. back in the 90s. And I think there's an issue particularly now more than ever that, you know, a tour is just a tour. You know, whether you're in Sri Lanka or whether you're in Australia, you go from nice hotel to nice hotel and you barely have any time to really process there's, there's also the sense of a division between those who could afford to be moralistic about it and those who couldn't. You get really strong statements by people like Viv Richards, who says that I would rather die than lay down my own dignity. Um, and, you know, others who said if they were offered enough money, they'd probably agree to wear chains. You know, the sin that suddenly the, the players who went were you know, kind of complicit with, with apartheid. Roland Butcher, who was the first black man to play for England, and he went to South Africa in Mike Gatting's 1989 um, rebel side, you know, asked, asked the question of if they had been in a similar position to the others, i.e. less well-paid, less, you know, um, successful careers, would they have been so, you know, would they have been so scathing? Well, and you there's do also get the-, the point made that some of these people were much more understanding in private, weren't they? You know, there mm. are comments made that, for example, Viv Richards was much more sympathetic in private. And maybe if you're, if you're being sympathetic to the Viv Richards style figures, you're saying that it was difficult because as a public figure, they had to take a hard, they felt they had to take a hard line. And in private, when they were talking to some of their friends who had toured, maybe they did understand yep. the financial reality. Yeah, and it's, I think it's impressive that, that um, Ashley Gray, the author and interviewer, never particularly takes a, you know, takes a hardline stance on this. You know, he, he himself doesn't make a moral judgment about what these, you know, what these people did, which I think is actually kind of refreshing in the sense of he's telling their stories rather than trying to, you know, establish what is, what is right and what is wrong around what is a very tangled, tangled situation. I, I think... In a way, the way that his decision to write the book and his decision to write it in the way he has his pursuit of all these players and the interviews suggests a degree of sympathy, a feeling that they deserve to have their story told. I completely agree. He, he's very careful, I think, to show, you know, he makes, for example, the point that the ANC in, in South Africa at the time were clear they did not want the tour to go ahead. Mm. So, you know, you had black political movement in South Africa very much opposing it. Um, but I think Gray is, is clearly simple. He, he wants to give the players that chance sort of years on um, to have their to have their voice, which they which for an awful long time that they never they never really had. Um, so in terms of the tours, um, the, the tours themselves, what stood out to you about um, these cricketers getting on the plane, going to, you know, get, going to South Africa and, and experiencing what it was to be on a quotes, you know, rebel tour of South Africa? You get an awful lot of recollections of players who enjoyed the experience you know who were treated who felt that an awful lot of the time um they were able to build sort of meaningful connections with south africans were able to live a good lifestyle there but i think within that there were uh, moments where that sort of facade slipped didn't Mm. it moments Mm. where actually well there was that colin croft moment where he's on a train and he gets asked to move out of the you know um, out of the whites only carriage and then perhaps, perhaps most important in the story is I mean that's horrifying in itself but perhaps most important is the fact that he's then given an apology afterwards and told oh that should never have happened because you're kind of different to the you know um, to, to the sort of South African 
the South mm. African uh, black people. Um, from a from a cricketing um, perspective, you do get this sense of suddenly all of these people being able to play against this amazing generation of South African cricketers who have been you know ostracised and unable to play on the play on the world stage and actually being able to kind of engage in that and some of the kind of bravado there's a wonderful story about Fawad Bacchus um, when his team like his team has 76 for 5 or something and he goes out to bat and he gets bowled and bounce the first ball and everyone thinks oh, of course if you get bowled bowled so he just duck out of the way but his, his level of bravado is such that he hooks it off his nose for 6 but then falls over backwards and onto his um, onto his stumps um, so you do get this kind of sense of being away you know when they're away from home from a cricketing perspective at least there is some kind of fun to be um some I think fun to be had. um the profiles that probably stick with you the most are perhaps those players who've fallen furthest yep. since the tours so we have particularly um Richard Austin and Herbert Chang um and I think it's hugely to Gray's credit as a writer and as a researcher that he tracked these people down gave them an airing in what often very difficult conversations I was left wondering and this is an impossible kind of thread to sort of unravel but you wonder to what extent this this is partly a book about the effect of the rebel tours, but there were also some people who sadly for for lots of reasons um you know personal psychological were just not very well set up for retirement and I felt that particularly with Austin and Chang that actually are we really reading a story about how the rebel tours kind of ruined their lives yep. or, or this very sad and and we know much broader story actually yeah. which is that an awful lot of sportsmen just struggle with that adjustment so i felt there was there was sort of that there yeah was the, kind of you that mean you can't well. kind of blame the whole australization from the rebel tour and everything else that came in their life you know came in their well, life afterwards exactly and clearly some players and it, it, it's it's sad in a way how it comes down to in some cases some quite simple decisions i mean the very basic question of some of the players took their rebel tour money and invested it and bought yeah. homes or started yeah. businesses yeah. and, and others spent it on drugs and some of them didn't and exactly <laughs> and and it, that, that that very sort of um blunt dividing line kind of feels very strong i thought there was an interesting kind of little narrative sub-narrative that um, emerged around um, alvin kalicharan who um uh, said to um, said to the author, when you go back to Australia, please can you collect testimonials from mm. Australian players to kind of prove what a big deal I was, kind of back in the, you know, back in the day. And I wondered out of that whether that was actually as much as anything, him kind of trying to b- blame this for not being seen to have a have had a more successful you know career or to have been a better get better better player because Kalitaran, you know, he he. I think he has he does have a reputation not as being one of the great West Indians but certainly as being as part of that mm, you know, mm. great great West Indian side of the um, of the 80s but that kind of absolute desperation to get some kind of seal of approval from abroad kind of left a bit of a sort of sour taste there, there's absolutely that dividing line between those players who have sort of made a piece with their career and those who haven't and you're absolutely right that I think there were clearly some players who just felt very lucky to have got on the tour at all yep. I think there's yep. a fast bowler um, Vinter who like clearly felt like it, it was a great privilege to have gone and that was it Whereas I think there were others for whom absolutely it felt like a consolation Lawrence, prize for a career that they deserved. Ro- yeah. Ro- Ro- Lawrence, Lawrence Rowe, Rowe is, a, is, a, is a fascinating yeah. one. You know, the person who is the absolute hero, and then it all kind of went 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 horribly wrong and ended in you know ended in wheels. I was very taken, and I think one thing that's very interesting, and this is the format works very well because you present you know Lawrence Rowe's story next to Herbert Chang, so you can really kind of compare and contrast. And clearly, different countries treated people differently. But I was very taken with Albert Padmore's theory that actually a lot of the general public 
did not in the Caribbean did not condemn the players too strongly and were very quick to forgive if they you know felt forgiveness was needed mm. but actually a lot of what has made the players lives difficult was the authority figures involved yeah. and I think it was this very interesting idea that the whole concept of a rebel tour I mean you know the clues in the name is is aside from the, the, the political ramifications is also a way of you know thumbing your nose at the domestic authorities yes. and I thought it was an interesting theory that actually partly what a lot of these players have really struggled with is with those in power, you know, that actually a lot of their um, contemporaries in the general public were willing, you know, everyone wanted to watch Lawrence Robat, whatever, whatever had happened. Yeah. They were, but, but, but some of those more senior in the game found it much harder to move on. Which probably explains why quite a lot of them are now move, lived abroad and, and tried to completely escape those power structures. That was well. very striking, wasn't it? How many people... Yeah, which you know, is another testimony to Gray's extraordinary research that he's chasing. Well, and, 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 and on that, I think the other thing to say about the, about the book is that it's actually very, very well written and that two traps that it could have fallen into, one of which is kind of telling, um, you know, telling the series from a whole lot of different perspectives it could have got... Uh, could have got quite repetitive um, and also writing up interviews can often lead to quite stodgy stodgy writing but I felt he really you know really avoided that and it's it's a remarkably well well written and well put together book where you get a sense of the different characters of each of the of, of the cricketers um, without it kind of descending into character yeah and I think that the, the pursuit of the players become interesting stories in themselves I mean there's the very set with Bernard Julian which I think is a very sad story mm. who's you know, is, is a recovering from cancer and has clearly lost a lot of social confidence and I think he never gets to interview Julian, but actually, in his own way, his his repeated attempts to try to speak to him, tell you about it, tell you as much about where he has ended up as an interview ever could. Um, so that is uh, mercenaries or missionaries or mercenaries, the Unforgiven, um, and I think would come with our strong recommendation. It's, Absolutely. Um, it's not really just a story that perhaps hasn't been told in this, but it's certainly a story that hasn't been told by the participants in this way before. And that is the 155th episode of Reverse Threats Radio. Um, get in contact at Reverse Thread on Twitter or leave us a review and leave us a review over on iTunes. Mm-hmm.